0: Welcome to Say That the podcast, where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald.
1: Yes, uh, correct.
0: Also joining us, Jed Brewer. Greetings. Joining us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger.
2: Ah, uh, we're all together again. Two episodes yes. in a row.
1: Feels good.
0: We're on our way to a streak. We have a great show for you. We have some great questions. Lined up, but first we must declare a bit of a recurring emergency—an emergency, emergency, recurring. We, we talked a couple of episodes ago about a uh, Christian dating site, Dominion Dating, um, and the appearance of said founder on the and I quote Hard Men podcast. Um, Uh, easy and uh in this last week as we record a couple weeks ago as you're hearing this we've had another very strong uh entry into an ongoing series i'm gonna call hey christian men you doing okay (laughs) (laughs) go on this comes to us courtesy of uh twitter Noted cesspool of the internet, um, from a man who we will not name because we are going to shame and we only want to do one of those at a time, uh, <laughs> who is a, an executive pastor at a church appears to be in a small town in the upper plain States. And he took to Twitter and thought that the thing to put out there and little did he know he would become the main character of both evangelical and ex Twitter for the day. Was, if your pastor can't operate a chop saw effectively, don't expect him to confront sin effectively.
3: Uh, Okay. Uh
0: So I'm looking at it on the site here, which he hasn't deleted it, which is either uh, integrity or insanity. I can't tell which. (laughs) He followed up the next day, once, uh, you know, things had begun, to say, to elaborate, power tools require the operator to not flinch when pulling the trigger. Addressing sin requires a man to not flinch in the face of tough situations. This is just one way of saying pastors should be men and should be men who are able to do manly things. Uh, and that yeah. uh, is, uh, I believe, to quote uh, one Homer Simpson, dig up, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> this is not helping your case. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to put this forth to the brain trust here and see if we can, we can get some movement on this. Can we get like a, like a 10, 20-year moratorium on any Christian writer, pastor, speaker, podcaster, blogger, whatever, uh, using the term manly? Yeah, mm.
3: that the yeah, that would be for the best. That would be for the best. Because it's not
0: going great. And one of the things I love about this one in particular, does this dude do not know that women can use power tools? All right. Like that's kind and of the point of power
2: tools and i mean yeah exactly that's the whole thing is we we're, we're designing this in a way that a human being can use them regardless of gender right this is just we're we're just yeah. trying to make the tools easier for everybody to use
1: like
0: there there are women who are contractors that's the thing yes right?
3: i know that this is a, a safe space and that i am uh, absolutely you know putting myself out as uh not manly enough to confront sin apparently but I have no idea what a chop saw is. That's, I've literally Mm. never heard that term before. That's
0: because no one calls it that. You may know it Ah. as a miter saw. (laughs) I do know a miter saw. I own one. (laughs) Almost like if you had ever used one, you would call it a miter saw. Uh Aha! It's almost as if this guy was frantically Googling, what's the manliest kind of saw? (laughs) Circular saw. Circle. Circle reciprocating saw that's too many syllables to be manly chop saw there it is yeah
1: yeah that's i don't think i would ever come up with this as like you need to be manly like me i'm a i'm a real man and you aren't that means you can't do ministry or whatever
3: well, you know, I'm glad, Glenn, that you used the word macho, because uh, I think that's it's the right word, and it also inspires something within me, which is, from now on, I want my pastor to be the Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh. <laughs> that, that is the new ball. Oh, yeah. This is what I'm saying. Sure. Sanctification. Snap into it. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Only the Macho Man Randy Savage <laughs> is sufficient to confront the sin in my life. Wow. Jed,
0: you're tempting me. To come up with an entire sermon series based on Macho Man Randy Savage promos and moves. And I think I can do that before the end of the episode. <laughs> well, Jed, does
2: this mean that he's also going to preach, like, shirtless, covered in
3: oil as well? Just the whole nine yards, the whole, like... Yes, obviously. At my church, the director of Family Life is the ultimate warrior. Sure.
0: <laughs> wow. Most of the activities are steroid based, but the family's doing <laughs> together, and it's great. <laughs> well, to, to that point, what, what I what I love about and again, I don't want to pick on on this dude because he's gotten enough of that, <laughs> and rightly so. But what, part of uh, semi-seriously, the the whole like because you know we made fun we make fun of the Mark Driscoll thing with the with the cage fighter and the tattoo, and we've uh, chronicled on this show the weird um fight church. And you guys remember that weird mega church men's conference where it started with like guys cosplaying as soldiers uh, fast roping into the sanctuary and all that, man, there's this weird thing where, and I don't mean this is negative. I have, I have many wonderful friends who are pastors, but the pastorate is, you know, dudes who went to grad school. Mostly they really like a nice, uh, a nice first edition (laughs) Of a book that was uh, written in London, which is great. I enjoy that as well. But then you get this weird funhouse mirror of them trying to guess what a dude who works a blue collar job would think means is manly. And it just leads to some very, very strange things.
3: Yeah. Like maybe
0: if you were just like, you know, in order to confront sin, you want a pastor who's not afraid of confrontation and can speak plainly. That would be a normal thing to say, but you had to take it to the Home Depot.
2: Right. Or that, you know, that if you, if your pastor has to confront somebody, that, that this is a person
0: who's humble and prayerful. Humble? You know, that doesn't sound but, very manly. Well, <laughs> what else is elite? Gentle at heart, like some kind of pansy? It's funny
2: because you know i mean i I notoriously cannot use power tools i i'm I'm just not good at building things or making things or any of that kind of stuff actually my 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 son is kind of into that stuff he has like his own dremel he's got his own circular saw he likes to put things together he's got the
0: glue and the clamps and designs and the whole do you find that has made him better at confronting your sin oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be perfectly fine at at, at digging in on all that stuff. Dad, ever um, since I've been making that biscuit joint, I've realized I have some things I want to say about your character. (laughs) But, you know, like, I mean, like, Christy
2: is very good at the power tools. She's very good at making things. And, you know, and and Jack's good at that stuff. I'm not really good at it. And I happen to have a couple of friends, a couple of guys that have listened to the show for a long time who are really really good at all that stuff. Really just just really good at building things, know what to know their way around every kind of tool and that kind of stuff. And whenever I've had conversations with these guys when they talk, when we talk about what it means to be a dad or what it be, means to be a man, it's just this thing that it just feels like uh for the most part Christian guys are just trying so hard and wow. they're missing completely the thing that people actually want, which is g- people generally want someone who's humble who will listen to them. And when you have a pastor who knows how to that, do that kind of stuff, uh, I don't really care if, if he can wield a compound miter saw and figuring out all the things. All we're trying to do is, does anybody want to help me with my, the problems in my difficult life? That's kind of the qualifications for somebody that wants to be a pastor.
3: Lee, that is good and right and excellent advice. It's godly. It's biblical, which means it has no place in the emergency. (laughs) But I'll I'll tell you what does is I've Googled the most manly man of all time. And I'd like to tell you about the the preaching and pastoral staff at my new church. So buckle up. Okay. First of all, senior pastor Chuck Norris. Oh, Oh, gosh. Get ready for it. Executive pastor Bruce Lee. Uh, we're getting warmer. That's good. D- diversity. Uh pastor of worship arts Steve McQueen. Okay. Teaching pastor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> Children's pastor Al Pacino.
0: Wow. Sure. Children's Church is so good, just when you think you're out, it pulls you back in.
3: <laughs> <laughs> my, my personal favorite, youth pastor Humphrey Bogart.
1: Wow. Right. Yeah. Sure, he's up on jazz. The kids love jazz. And, and somehow he's in black and white the whole time.
3: The
0: entire time. <laughs> the manliest
3: colors. <laughs> Outreach coordinator Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> mm, wow.
0: Outreach to whom? <laughs> For who can understand him?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Jed's church is the Expendables. I think.
3: Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's it is right. literally the church of the there Expendables. The church of
1: the Expendables.
3: <laughs> sorry, guys, didn't catch that. It's pretty loud over here. With my chop, bang, boom, press. What, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. sorry. Here comes the next, the next job. so I can't hear you guys.
0: That's right. I came up with my own sledgehammer. I use it to nail the pictures into my wall, but it's the manliest kind of hammer, so it's what I got. (laughs) Well, I think uh, that's all very good stuff, but uh, as promised, I'm going to pitch a, uh, you know, Getting in Touch with the Macho King Inside of You, a sermon series inspired by the life and times of the Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh,
3: I am so excited.
0: Of course, there's the reality that uh, it has to start with the idea that your your spirituality has to be the best. We strive for excellence. We want to be the cream of the crop based on uh, the very important uh, WrestleMania 3 promo that he did. <laughs> mm. Pulling out creamers to throw at Mean Gene Oakland and a weird sleight slight of hand magic going on mm. there. Mm. Okay. Uh, tied in with that, of course, you have... Uh, when you, the power of community, when you combine with other people to do good things, you form the mega powers, the name of the tag team between Randy <laughs> Savage and Hulk Hogan wow. that sped through to WrestleMania five. Of course, the most important thing is that we reach out, that we do uh, ministry, that we do outreach, that we support people going overseas, that we're a real intercontinental champion
3: of a wow. church
0: is certainly something we want. And of course, maybe the most important thing you can do for your spiritual journey Is giving temptation an elbow off the top rope, the key to victory. Welcome to the Macho Man Randy Savage Memorial Church, which only can be based in Tampa, Florida.
1: We hope (laughs) you'll join us
0: every Sunday night at eight, because let's be honest, this is not a morning type of place. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And with that, we will declare emergency off. (laughs) Oh, gosh, (laughs) man. Maybe several different types of emergency on, but that emergency is off. If you would like uh, good content that's way more of the good stuff that Lee was saying and way less of all the weird stuff I just did, then you can sign up for Bridgebox at MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. Uh, Good stuff in your inbox, songs, sermons, Bible studies, all sorts of good stuff. Beginning of every month, only $8 a month, great way to... Uh, Support us and support the ministry in Chicago, missionusa.com slash bridgebox. You can, of course, also join us for that very same ministry every Tuesday, 730 p.m. Central time, facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago for our bridge live service. And if you can't catch it live, every single episode is immediately archived. The videos tab on that same Facebook page for you to watch at your own pace. We hope you'll join us. We're still having a lot of fun over there on the bridge live to jump to our first question here. If you count this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down to your episode description and click the links there. First question comes in and says, I've always struggled with grief and loss. Funerals are a big trigger for me. It feels like I have no control and I act out because of that feeling. What's a healthy way to view grieving? Another, a really great, really rich question there. And Glenn, where would we start off?
1: Well let's start with you know defining what the unhealthy way would be so that we know that we're avoiding that as we pursue the healthy way of grieving. The unhealthy way is letting yourself get overloaded. That's the that's the 100% thing we're trying to avoid here. If you get yourself totally overloaded and overwhelmed with grief, you're wallowing in it, you're 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 letting yourself overcook on that and you're getting to a point where you are pushing yourself past your limits of being able to stand temptation of any sort of, uh, of kind or type, you're going to end up having some kind of a backslide, some kind of a relapse, some kind of a you know, negative episode of some sort. And that's because you were pushing yourself towards an overload, an emotional overload, and you weren't keeping that in check, and you weren't keeping any kind of balance there. If you know you're doing that, uh, then it's about recognizing there's a part of you that wants to lose that control. There's a part of you that wants to say, I get to do whatever. You can't hold me accountable for the usual things because I'm in an overloaded position. And what we want you to recognize is, overloading yourself is the, is a choice and we want you to not choose that because the consequences will still be there you know the the all bets are not off because some some person a relative or a friend of yours has passed away uh, but i think there's also uh, about it, it's also about recognizing i have to handle life on life's terms i have to uh, recognize that i can't give myself permission to not handle what my responsibilities are, what my life is, is doing, and so forth. I need to balance that. That's a different thing. I need to recognize, again, I'm getting overloaded in this department, so I need to balance that with something else in order that I can live my life, handle my responsibilities, do what I need to be doing in life. But that's about finding that balance and achieving that balance, it's about recognizing there is a time to do what we call grief work. Uh, there's a time to to deal with that grief, to engage with it, to wrestle with it, to decide how you feel about it, uh, to decide, you know, to work through anger or frustration or regret or any of those kinds of things— that might be journaling, that might be praying, that might be going for a long walk and just talking to the Lord about it. Uh, It might be making a mixtape of, you know, all the memories that you had with that person, whatever it is. But there's a point where that needs to then stop. The grief work stops, we put our grief uh, work back in the box, we put the box back on the shelf, and then we get on with our day here. Because we're not going to be able to get this all done in one go. So, we have that mentality of this needs to be broken up. this needs to be done bit by bit by bit. We're giving ourselves permission to take our time with that, and therefore we don't get overloaded. We don't get overwhelmed. we don't you know end up breaking our brain on this kind of stuff. We do the work to engage with it. We're not running away from it, we're not wallowing in it either we're not we're avoiding both of those two extremes uh in between is where we engage with that. And it's about recognizing that God is there for you in that moment, that he's there to give you that peace, that strength, that wisdom, that perspective, all of that. He wants to do that work with you, uh, and that he's on your side. But when we get in this sort of um, selfish kind of place, and that's what grief does to us, it makes us selfish. We think selfishly. When we get in that place where everything kind of folds in on ourselves— We're just going to find a downward spiral every single time with that. So pushing forward in doing that grief work is, I think, the critical thing.
0: I think it's a really solid foundation to start on. And Jed, I'd love to get you to pick us up there because I think a big thing about grief, as as Glenn is pointing to, there's a lot of emotion that comes with it. There's a lot of things that can come with it. If we're kind of new to it or if we've had bad experiences, maybe if we had a substance abuse pass or just had some really bad experiences where we start with a f- fundamental assumption that I can't handle grief Yep, and then go from there. And I don't think that's the right place to start. Is it?
3: It's definitely not. I, I want to give a uh, give full credit and a shout out to my friend, a uh, social worker, Alana Grenda. Uh, this is mm-hmm. all stuff that I've learned from her. She helps a lot of people who are dealing with grief and loss and, there's really kind of three things that that we want to look at that all go together. The first is to be clear other people actually do understand what you're dealing with. One of the weird things that grief tells us is no one knows how you feel. No one could possibly get how you feel. And there's a tiny seed of truth in that in, in that no one had this exact relationship with this exact person. So I mean, in a very specific way, that thought in your head could be true, but in every other way, it is patently false. Um, other people do know what it's like to experience loss. Other people do know what it's like to, to grieve. So in fact, other people do understand, um, and, and we need to not feed that sense of um, singularity and isolation in our heads. And, and that kind of leads to the next thing, which is if other people do understand, then you are not alone. Um, because that's, that's the next thing that, that grief often, particularly grief that's veering into unhealthy places often wants to tell us is that no one gets how you feel. And you are just utterly alone. You are alone in the world. You are alone in, in the, the darkness of, of passing existence. And that's just not true. Other people do understand what you're dealing with. Um, some of them would actually like to be a support to you. You are not alone. Um, in 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 grief, you're not alone in what you're facing, and then that leads actually to the third thing that Matt you were uh, pointing to uh, right at the beginning there, which is you can handle this um, maybe you can't handle all of it you know maybe you can't handle five years' worth of a grieving process this afternoon, but you also don't need to. You can handle the grief that you are dealing with today for today. you can handle this process you don't need a bottle or a pill or a sexual escapade or whatever else it is to get you through, you can actually handle um, the grieving process. But I think that we need all three of those things uh, together to really reinforce that. Again, you are not alone. Other people do understand, and given that, you can handle this. I think that if we want to, to go even further, we can add in the fact that um, uh, the God of all creation is on your side and wants to strengthen you. Um, and if we have support both from God and from other people who who uh, know what we are going through, then you can definitely handle this. One more uh, quick bonus point: this has just been true in, in grieving processes in my own life, and it's not something that you have to to be on right away. But I think it's important to to try and include. It's certainly been helpful to me, which is looking for moments where you can choose a sense of gratitude. For having gotten to know this person. For having gotten to experience them. I think one of the things about. About grief. And about grieving. Is that it wants to. um, It wants to color everything. With kind of the same brush. um, Which is not. Really how life works. Uh, And. um, I, I think there's a lot of healing. At least in my life. This has been true. I think there's a lot of healing to be had. In the realization that. Um, one of the things that I could be processing and may need to be processing again, is that sense of gratitude and thankfulness for the the relationship I did get to have in the time that I did get to have with this person.
0: That's it's a wonderful place to take that. And Lee, I'd love you to maybe spring off that last point about the, the coloring of everything, the, the, the weirdness of grief, which I think is sometimes underplayed. And our friend who wrote in the question mentions being triggered by funerals. And I think there's a real kind of synopsis of all the weird stuff about grief that can be found at a funeral, particularly in that it's something that, particularly for the people you know who are the closest to the the, the person who passed away, can be a thing that doesn't actually bring them any kind of catharsis. It's just kind of this weird day where everyone's in a haze. What does that aspect add to this?
2: I, I th- I'm so glad you brought that up, and and for the question asker. I'm glad you're saying something about funerals, because it's something that um, I don't think it gets a lot of play. Um, It's certainly not as much attention as, as it ought to. Just the fact that funerals can be really, really weird. And as a pastor, I've been to a million of them. Sometimes funerals are straight up bad they They can be painful they can be they can be f- full of people saying all kinds of weird stuff that that don't like track or jive with your experience of that person that you have lost in any way and so exactly as Matt's alluding to, you can go to this really strange day where you're feeling a million different things and not feel settled, not feel that you mm. got to say goodbye, not feel that you even know where you are. Like, you know, like you might be experiencing, uh, strange emotions about the fact that you lost somebody with whom you had a, a, like a confusing relationship and everybody in the family is just beatifying this person and talking about how they were always the most amazing person who ever lit. And you're looking at that and listening to these stories and thinking one, that isn't true. Uh, cause nobody's really that person two. I know for a fact you didn't feel that way about them when they were walking around. And mm-hmm. three, you're not helping me in any way because I certainly didn't feel – so am I supposed to kind of amen all this stuff? And, and it can – anyway, funerals can be so disorienting. They can be so strange. They can be so painful and unhelpful. And a lot of times – and this is, just, this is just a sad fact of the state of affairs. Sometimes you have to just endure a funeral. We we just got to get through that piece, and then we can get to the the things that these other guys are talking about, which is the actual work of grief. A funeral does have um, a place when it's done well and handled with sensitivity and the right kind of purpose. It allows human beings to be human beings. It allows people to weep if they need to to uh, remember stories and laugh a little bit if they need to, and most importantly, it allows them to say goodbye. And uh, we are remembering together and we're saying goodbye. We're going to have a range of emotions. It's not going to be monochromatic as far as emotional landscape. It's going to be a lot of kind of tertiary colors. I'm going to feel some happiness. I'm going to feel some weird sadness. I'm going to feel all kinds of things. All that stuff is allowed. Um, But funerals... Just specifically can be weird, then we get to the grieving process um just as a kind of a window into my own experience um you know everybody everybody in this last year has has probably lost somebody or uh multiple people um the we had to go uh through a grieving process that was extremely painful for our family, and for me the the most helpful part of the grieving process has been to reach out to someone else who loved the person that we lost and just to talk about them. Just to just to spend some time, not the whole day, not you know, not uh not become overwhelmed in it, but just to intentionally bring up some conversations and kind of walk together a little bit. Maybe as Thirty-minute conversation and just we're just going to remember and grieve together. That has been for me the most cathartic kind of experience. Uh, there's this there's this interesting piece to intentionally seeking out someone else who is grieving with you to do exactly what Jed's talking about to recognize that I'm not alone and that other people feel the way that I do, and just to be able to listen to each other. That is such a comforting exercise to take some time and intentionally uh, grieve together, to remember together, to share stories, and, um, and just to listen to each other. It's, it's a way to serve one another. Um, you might even find you have opportunities with other people who are grieving to meet some physical needs of theirs, to send them a plate of brownies or a letter or something like that. All of these things can be th- cathartic, um, but again, sometimes you just have to realize the funeral is going to be whack, and I've just got to endure the funeral, and then I can get down to the to the work of grief, uh, grief, and figure out how to do it in a healthy way, to not try to do it all at once, to not try to do it by myself, but to 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 find somebody else who can walk with me in that, and we serve each other.
0: That's all great stuff from these guys. I really, really like Lee's point there, which I think is such a strong one about the strangeness of grief, the oddness of it. I think part of when people really can work themselves into something unhealthy is when they feel like they, in order to grieve, they need to be aggressively and uh, comprehensively sad. Um, There's certainly, you know, moments of sadness that come with something that is to be grieved, but there's also moments of dark humor and there's moments of boredom and there's moments of just feeling a little bit unsettled. There's, it's a, you run the full spectrum because it is just a human thing. It involves the, the whole run of that. So it's because of that, it is nothing to be afraid of. takes us back to where we started off. You, you can Uh, sit through that, live through it, and come out on the other side of that process. Move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, I feel like I'm in a place in life where I have a lot of things I don't want to do and deal with a lot of rules. I'm impatient for a time when I truly get to live my life and everything seems to be moving just too slowly. What can God do about that? Another great question, and Jed, where do we start off?
3: Oh, sorry for what you're dealing with. Um, that doesn't sound like it is fun at all, and I would hate it. So if you're not happy with it, it makes sense to me. Uh, we got your back. We're, we're praying for you. Um, here's kind of the big picture up front, of course, which I imagine you already know, is that God can give you the strength that you need to deal with this. Um, he can give you the strength that you need for today, and he wants to. He can give you the strength that you need for the next five minutes. Uh, and uh, some days we need to really go five minutes at a time because that's just, the kind of situation that we're in. Um, and it sounds like that may be the kind of situation that you're in. I think one thing that is worth checking is uh, talking to a pastor, talking to a counselor, talking to some friends you can really trust um, and just get a reality check on, am I doing what I should be doing? In other words, I'm in a, I'm in a tough situation that I'm not crazy about. Is this what I should actually be doing, because in life, there's there's plenty of times where the right move, the right choice is a situation where there's a lot of things I don't like, and there's a lot of rules, and it feels like it's taking forever. There are also situations we don't need to be in, um, uh, and it would be really good to be clear uh, which we are dealing with. But again, um, a pastor that we trust, a counselor that we trust, uh, some people who— um uh, our our older friends who who we admire and look up to be good to check on that if if we're doing something that makes sense if we're in the kind of situation that we we ought to be in well in that case the way out is through uh and so it becomes a question of you know how do we how do we make it and the way that we make it is by getting strength from God uh, today and for the next 5 minutes but I do want to ask because I I think this is important is you're saying that there's a lot of rules. Uh, you got to do a lot of things that you don't want. And you said I, the thing that you really want is a time in your life when you truly get to live your life. And I want to ask as an open-ended question that I really want to encourage you to think about. Is there a chance that there are pieces of freedom and opportunity that are available to you today that you may not be seeing? There are some situations in life where we go from basically no freedom one day to basically complete freedom the next day. There, There are some situations in life like that, but it's much more common that we go from having a bit of freedom to a bit more freedom to a little bit more than that, to a little bit more than that, to a little bit more than that. That's much more common. And. If that's the kind of trajectory that your life is on, and I don't know that, but but by the odds, then we will be well served by learning the skill of figuring out what freedoms are available to us today, by figuring out what opportunities are available to us in the season that you are in. Um, it turns out that there are almost no situations on earth and i'm i'm including literal prison uh, when i say the following there are almost no situations on earth in which you have no freedom of decision and no opportunity to better yourself um you may not have much freedom of decision and you may not have much opportunity to better yourself but that's not the same as none and i think if we will develop the muscle and the skill and the uh, creativity to identify the freedoms that we do have and the opportunities that we do have, two things are going to happen. One, we're going to be a lot better at seeing them in the future. Um, mm-hmm. You know, intelligence is about the ability to see connections, and developing a sense of intelligence about opportunities and freedoms in your life is a really good thing that will serve you well. But the other thing is developing a sense of both positive momentum and exercising your own human agency is one of the ways that I think God's going to give you strength to deal with the season that you're in. Um, The more that you can find the freedoms and opportunities that you do have and actually take a hold of them, the better your morale is likely to be, the more emotional strength you're going to have to deal with the parts that you don't like, and it will benefit you for the future. Keep your head up. Hang in there. We've got your back.
0: A really, really great place to start that off. and Glenn, where would we take it from there?
3: We uh I we covered this
1: a uh, uh, a bit uh on on the the Bridge Live uh, broadcast and i mentioned a few things I'd like to expand on here because I, I in a lot of ways you know this can sound a little bit niche you know if you're if you're locked up you're in a rehab you're maybe you're in school and you got a lot of rules you got to do a lot of things that people tell you to do it feels very restrictive but I think there are people who feel that way in their careers, people who feel that way in their relationships. Uh, I think it's actually a very common thing that people feel like, uh, I I just don't want this. I want the freedom to get to the good stuff. And so I, I want to really zoom in on two things that the devil is trying to do here. Uh, if we know what his tactics are, then we know how to counteract that. Uh. Thing number one that the devil is trying to do is to take a blessing that you have and turn it into a curse in your mind. Uh, You know, the the example I gave, and man, it is a rich and very true one on on the Bridge Live broadcast, is uh, the musicians. You know, if if you want to really torture a musician, uh, say, hey, why don't you play us a little something? You know, (laughs) they'll act like, oh, oh, this is But am I just some sort of trained monkey that I just play things and, you know, this I'm here to entertain you? You you say, well, why don't you play us the the demo from your latest recording session? Oh, it's not finished and it's not, you know, it's so bad and things must be. And you you start to, to get a relationship going with some of these people and you realize... I don't think you like music, dude. (laughs) You're the wrong deal here. But they started off loving it. Of course. Mm -hmm. How, how else would you get in that? But I think there are lots of people in lots of professions. And again, in lots of relationships where they convince themselves that they're in some sort of saga and some struggle to get over all of the horrible obstacles and the, the, you know, whatever it is, but that's really about taking what's wrong with a situation you love and focusing on those wrong things. And the devil's helping us in that process, obviously. So this is a thing that you love. This is a a situation that's bettering your life. This is a portal to greater things for you. But then we're going to turn that into a curse by focusing on the few things that are wrong with it or bad with it and so forth. The second thing that I think the devil tries to do there is to say the good stuff is not here. The the good over there is where it's real. That's the good stuff. That's th- this wife that you have. That's not the good wife. The good wife is that wife over there. You marry her and you got the good situation. This is a bad situation over here to constantly get us, you know, uh, you know, th- chasing rainbows and and having this idea that things are going to be way, way better over there. Well, if you take your sour attitude of ter- taking every blessing and turn it into a curse by, you know, obsessing about the things that are wrong with it, wherever you go, it's not going to be good. Uh, that's just the way life works. So to counteract all of that, what we do is uh, to focus on thankfulness. If I'm thankful... For the good things of my life, and I appreciate them, then I, you know, first of all, I can I can actually process what's wrong with that so much better because I, I sort of have more bandwidth for it. Second of all, if I'm blessed, if, if I'm thankful, I'm blessed now. I feel blessed all the time. I, I'm I'm the good stuff isn't over there; it's here. This is good. Uh, I can see better how it could be improved upon, or. Changes that I might need or want to make, but I recognize that there is um, something good about my situation that I am not focused on. And I'm not thankful for that. I, if I could really in this and nail it down, I know lots and lots and lots of good, sincere, honest, you know, Christians who are striving to live a godly life. But it is a really small percentage of them that I'd look at them and say, "This person's actually thankful that's a that's actually a rare thing now they think they're they think of themselves as generally thankful in sort of a vague sort of way, but I think it's worth trying to figure out for yourself how you can maximize that thankfulness in your life mm. and then take a different look at these things that have you constantly wrestling with that discontent.
0: I think that's all great stuff. Once again, Lee, where we close it out.
2: It is, it, it is all great stuff. I like the idea of using a time that you feel stuck as kind of a training ground uh, for something that's, going to be important in basically it's going to be important later on it's going to be important right now and and it's and it's going to be important as you as you do find yourself moving gradually into more and more freedoms and that is I would use a time that you feel stuck as a training ground to to kind of practice or get reps on increasing the the reality your private reality of your of your friendship with the lord um and what I mean by that is to is to really start including him on everything that you're experiencing all the things that all the things that that do feel frustrating to you and all of the and all the things that these guys are talking about all the good things that you're trying and training yourself to recognize but to be honest about all of those pieces and to not feel like you you have to you know holy it up or anything like that just to share like if if something happens and you feel like if i had control of that i would do it this way have that conversation with the lord and leave some room for for listening for how would he respond to that and how would what would his feedback be um and it, a couple of things start to happen one you will get better at at really you know sharing your heart with the lord and and listening um, and so you may get better at hearing from him and being more sensitive to what the where the the Lord is leading you. But another thing is that you're going to start to develop a sense of what would you do with all the freedom if you had it right now? What would that look like for you? How would you how would you spend that freedom? Um, do we actually know what we what we'd want to do, or are we just kind of upset by somebody's telling us to do things we don't want to do? Um, and that's that would be some good stuff to learn. Um, there's a really cool place, and most people know it. in the book of uh, Philippians, in chapter four, where uh, Paul says, "Be anxious for nothing, but in all you know, in all things with with prayers and supplications, make let your requests be made known to God." And it's kind of weird because supplication is a kind of prayer, and so he says with prayers and supplications, it's like two different words. And in the original language that that Paul wrote this in that the word that we've translated prayers is actually a really, really cool word that would surprise everybody that grew up in the church that I grew up in. And so I don't know if this is, if you grew up in a church uh, that was anything like mine, or if maybe you didn't grow up in church at all, that's totally fine. But the, the original language, that word means wishes, which is really, really cool. I mean, like, if you had told me in the church that I was growing up in, what God really wants is for you to, whenever you feel anxious or troubled, He wants you to talk to Him and pour out all your wishes to Him. I would be like, no, He doesn't. No, He <laughs> no, He does not want to hear my wishes. He wants me to, uh, He wants obedience, and mm. He wants me to give uh, adoration, confession, uh and you know all the things that we had like a we had uh, an acronym for the way that you prayed but actually what paul says is actually w- the lord wants when you're feeling when you're feeling stressed or anxious or or troubled or worried what the lord wants to do is he wants you to just pour out all your wishes just give your give your wish list that that he would love to have that conversation and that to me is so cool that that's the kind of that's the kind of dude we're talking about here he just says Yeah, I understand that you're worried and stressed, and I understand that you feel frustrated and and that you feel disappointed and angry. Let's talk. I would love to talk. And if you'd like to, we could just talk about what your wishes are. We can talk about what you would do if you were the king of the jungle. Um. so in your version of the world, what would you want it to be? And and I just think it's really cool that that's the, that's the kind of dude that we're working with here. That's the kind of relationship that the Lord wants us to have. Do we, do we actually have an idea of what we would do with all the freedom? Let's start to have that conversation with the Lord, and let's start to get a little bit better at listening little by little. Let's use this time of feeling stuck as a training ground to increase the the depth and the reality of that relationship.
0: All great stuff, once again, from all of these guys. We are going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, Okay, this has to do with the Gnostic Gospels. I recently read up on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Council of Nicaea, etc., and it really made a lot of sense to me that the past church would edit out any traces of strong women in the biblical canon, also the Acts of Paul and Thesea, because of the patriarchal society of that time. But I feel like we still clearly have now and are trying to uproot reading up on these things, I was like, okay, well, if hypothetically, the gospel of Mary Magdalene is legit, then maybe Jesus would be more legit to me, too. But I don't know how to approach any of that. Uh, so, a great question. We're glad you wrote in. Um, we're not going to really dig too, too much. It'll be a little bit about going to the Gnostic Gospels thing, which, if you're not familiar with that, is a basically a series of other books about the life of Jesus of various and, and Rare, uh, you know, increasingly dubiously uh, sourced history uh, that was a, kind of a almost a fan fiction culture at the time in the early kind of church where people just wrote little stories that had Jesus in them. There's a bunch that uh, got pretty popular, got passed around. If you're old like we are and remember the uh, weird thing that followed the Da Vinci Code, where they were like, you could buy copies of the Gnostic Gospels and Borders and stuff, or a bookstore that exists currently. I can't think of any, but Borders was one you could <laughs> buy in at the time. Uh, but more than that, I think I'd love for us to get into this idea of someone who exists in our current climate where uh, the church has been, in some cases still is, and there's a lot going on in major denominations, crazily misogynistic. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no getting around that. There's no hiding from that. But Lean, I'd love to get you to kick us off here. I, I think there is what I see in this question is someone trying to say, I, I want to go see, I want there to have been a time and a Jesus and a Christianity that didn't have all this stuff that uh, white dudes have been putting on it since right. then. Because it would be so much easier for me to to hang out with that and, and vibe with that. And I think that that's a frequency we can totally uh deal with and agree with and come in on. And I think if we can start with wanting that, we find some good news on this, right? Oh, we find great news on this. And I, I think it's
2: a perfect setup, Matt. And I mean, if if you, you know, people that are frustrated with the way churches have um, treated women and represented women, that makes perfect sense. Churches have been awful, um, notoriously awful, about the way that they treat women, the way they re- represent women, the really good news on this, as Matt's saying, is when you actually just look at the the what is in the canon, what we have, the gospels that we have, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at his relationships, when you look at the way his his ministry was handled, all, all of those things, you find some really, really cool stuff when it comes to how did jesus the questions of how did Jesus feel about women? How did Jesus treat women? First of all, uh, Jesus treated women great. Um, he he uh, amplified the voices of women. He, he, had, uh, he had women who were part of his larger band of, of students, disciples. Um, there were uh, powerful women who were wealthy women who traveled with Jesus and actually financed his mission. Some of Jesus's biggest financial supporters were were uh, powerful, strong, wealthy women. That was also true of the Apostle Paul. His a lot of his ministry was financed by women who were actually business owners and who had money and the whole thing. The very first person that Jesus ever said that Jesus ever told he was the Messiah was a woman. Um, a, a story where Jesus says. As long as the Gospel is told wherever it's told in the world, this moment right here will be told with it was the story of of the devotion of of one of his followers who was a woman um, when we look at the life of Jesus in the in the Gospels that are that are in the scriptures right now we see we see a Jesus who talked to who shared his life with, who walked and did ministry with, who was supported by strong women who who was just inclusive and in the whole 9 yards. And so, yes, the way the church has treated women has been awful, but that's not the way Jesus did. That's not the when you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, you see a totally different kind of pattern, and that is really really great news.
0: Indeed, it is, and a great place to start this off. And Glenn, what would we add to that to kind of flesh this out?
1: Well, I I love everything that Lee is saying there, and i'd I'd like you know I'd like to 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 make it clear that we're not we don't want to steer you off of this idea of there is a problem with patriarchy and misogyny in the history of the church. We agree with you on that. I I think what we're trying to do is go the long way around this, and I I really want to send that back to you on this. So first and foremost, super boring details here, but we'll just bang through them very quickly. There is an actual science to determining what is biblically accurate, what books or even parts of uh, books are um, accurate, and which are not. The word for that is biblical criticism, which is a terrible word for that. I don't I don't get that, but um, the idea is you basically look at um, how old this manuscript is. If you have a copy of, let's say, the book of James, how old is this copy? Uh, so, so that the older it is, the more reliable we would assume that it would be. Uh, then we look at um if If we have let's say a copy of uh, uh, something that we know that Paul wrote and we have this other copy that we think that paul wrote we we would compare the verbiage we would the turn of phrase, the writing style, and we would you know line that up in such a way to where we would be able to use actual logic actual scientific analysis to determine whether this is an accurate um, and, and authentic uh, piece of, of Scripture. Uh, so it's important then to recognize canon is our word for books that are in the Bible versus books that are not in the Bible. And canon has shifted over time. If you uh, grew up Catholic, uh, there are different books in the Catholic Bible than there is in a Protestant Bible. Uh, If you grew up Eastern Orthodox, there are different books in in that than there are in in a a Protestant Bible. Um, Those books have changed over time. They haven't changed for a long, long time. But even stuff like having the Dead Sea Scrolls, we got some really old manuscripts there that were really cool, and they added a the little teeny tiny, teeny, teeny tiny nuances here and there. But if you read your NIV Bible, you look in the footnotes, it says DSS, that means Dead Sea Scrolls, and it'll say, you know, DSS includes this little phrase, this little bit there. So you can, you know, see that understanding of biblical accuracy and what, what we call biblical criticism at work there, as we are evolving in our understanding of what was accurately said there. So I say all that boring stuff to make a a very simple point, and that is that biblical accuracy is the determining factor of what goes in or out of canon. Uh, We want it to be a conspiracy of misogyny and patriarchy and all of these other conspiracy type of things, but you wouldn't be able to... get that done in an environment where it is, like I say, almost a scientific analysis of how to get this stuff done. So you looking for doctrinal conspiracies ends up being kind of a dead-end street with that. So I think what that does is it sends us back around to the reality that, first of all, there are lots of examples of strong women in the Bible. Uh, and we need to be teaching that, we need to be looking at that, and we aren't doing that enough. We need to look at uh, teaching more about Deborah, teaching more about Esther, uh, you know, from obviously those are from the, the Old Testament, you know, Priscilla in the New Testament, uh, you know, some of these uh, people who were key to shaping not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament world that then becomes Christianity. I think we need more of that, and it is in there. We don't need to look in Gnostic Gospels and stuff that really doesn't have anywhere near the, the that um, biblical accuracy that we're looking for. The, the manuscripts just don't aren't old enough. We don't have good enough examples of that. We're much better off looking at what is in there, and there's plenty in there, and it is overlooked. Misogynists are going to misogynize. But it's important for all of us who are listening to this to acknowledge that when, when they do that, they are departing from the Word of God the moment they set mm. out to do that.
0: a great point. And, Jed, I'd love you to pick us up right there, because the biblical canon, as, as Lynn outlines it out there, um, there are some, some dodgy bits, there are some bits that are, you know, of a time and a context and the culture of which they were. But it is actually pretty clear on sexism, and it's again it.
3: It really is, uh, and we want to be clear. Uh, I am against sexism. Uh, all of us on this podcast are against sexism. And another thing that's against sexism is the Bible. So, um, uh, Glenn and uh, Lee both have already given you some references. I'm going to give you just a few more, um, and and these get. Very much into the realm of doctrine, we're going to start the first chapter of the first book. This is Genesis one twenty seven. So God created human beings in His own likeness; He created them to be like Himself. He created them as male and female. So here, God is creating mankind or humankind in His own image, and men and women are equally made in the image of God, uh, according to Genesis one twenty seven. So trying to treat uh, uh, one part of that equation like lesser would literally be an insult. To the Creator God from whom we all come. Now we'll jump ahead to the New Testament. This is the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So again, asserting that one gender or other variables, but that one gender would be superior uh, to another is um, anti biblical, uh, anti to the Old Testament. Anti to the New Testament. And just for fun, because I have the mic on the subject of preaching, here's an interesting tidbit. I'm going to read you a story. This is from Matthew chapter 28. Just hang with me for a second. The Sabbath day was now over. It was dawn on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a powerful earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven. The angel went to the tomb. He rolled back the stone and sat on it. His body shone like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly. Tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Let's pause for a second. Women were just given the most important preaching assignment that has ever existed in the history of mankind. (laughs) The, The most important news that has ever been given to anyone was just entrusted to women to go and deliver this message, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Now, you might be thinking, well, that seems awfully fancy, Jed, but that's an angel talking, not God. So I guess game over. Well, let's read on, shall we? So...
0: Mm. Oh, no, that's where the passage stops on (laughs) (laughs) complementarianism.reform.
3: So the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, but they were filled with joy. They ran to tell the disciples, suddenly Jesus met them. You might have heard of him. Greetings, he said. They came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus, you might have heard of him, said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Again, women are given the most important message that's ever been given to anyone to go and deliver.
0: Jed, would you say there was news that was good that those (laughs)
3: women were tasked with sharing with people? I I strongly would. So, and again, uh, Glenn and Lee have already given you uh, very good examples, but here we have two definitive doctrinal statements about equal worth between men and women, and we have Jesus himself uh, entrusting a gospel to be preached to women. So I want to offer a couple things for you to think out on on that basis. The first is, the Bible is clear that sexism is bad. There is no way around that. There is no way uh, to— um, with a clear reading of the text, believe that the Bible, including the current biblical canon, in any way supports sexism, that is right out now here 's the thing: the people that are on all this really awful misogyny, they know that yeah. they 're aware of everything that you and I have just talked about over the last three minutes they 're choosing to be on something bad mm. thank you they they know they're they 're not ignorant they're they 're choosing it, so we need to ask why are they choosing that? What is yeah. this about? Well, there's all kinds of reasons. There's, there's love of power. There's love of control. There's love of money. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this. There's a lot of money to be made out of being a misogynist, it turns out. Yeah. Um, but there's another thing, too. And this does not get talked about very often, but it's a huge factor for a lot of people. People don't want to have to admit that they were wrong. That's true. But that's not as strong as you might think. Here's what people really don't want to have to admit. They don't want to have to admit that their dad was wrong. Whoa. oh They don't want to have to admit that their pastor was wrong. They Go don't ahead. want to have to admit that their grandfather was wrong. They don't want to have to admit that the guy that wrote their favorite book didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. People don't want to admit that they're wrong, and they really, really don't. But man, do they not want to have to admit that pastor or dad or grandpa or famous theologian was on this one point totally full of it. They just don't want to have to admit that. And we can be understanding about that, I guess, to a point. But here's the thing. Nobody is right about everything. Right. You have never in your life known any person who is right about everything all the time. And you never will. And all of us would do exceedingly well to lean into the reality that the best Christians you know are still massively wrong about some things. The most sincere believers you know are massively wrong about some things. The most highly published Christian thinkers you can think of are massively wrong about some things. And anyone who supports any form of sexism is massively wrong, biblically speaking. They're wrong practically speaking and morally speaking and ethically speaking, but they are also wrong biblically speaking. At the end of the day, I don't think that I know what all of this means for you as a takeaway. I think you're going to have to decide it for yourself. But I think one thing to remember again is they know they're, they're aware of what's in the Bible. They're, they're choosing to be on what they're on. They don't want to come off of it. If God is calling you to, um, to fight that fight, well then, then fight it and let us know how we can help. If he's not calling you to fight that fight, I think it's worth looking at how much joy and peace and, and goodness you could have in your life If you left um, these—I'm trying to find a nice word, and I'm uh, struggling—these folks that are on Awful Stuff, if you left them uh, to be on their nonsense and you went out and lived a good and joyful and your own life.
0: It's a really great point. Now, Jed mentions that uh, everyone is wrong about something, even the most learned and published of people. And to that, I'm not sure he's considered that their theology is systematic, Jed. (laughs) Mm. They have a whole system. And a system's never been wrong about anything. Uh, I I would echo some, all these guys gave you some great stuff. I would echo some small things. Give one example. So as as these guys have pointed out, if you start with the the baseline and it is up to you, whether you not accept accept this or not, that there is a God and he chooses to speak to us. And one of the ways he chooses to speak to us is through a collection of writings that are scriptures. Uh, All four of us in this podcast believe that. That's up to you. But if you're going to start with that, that's kind of where we have to have a fundamental coming together to 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 kind of get anywhere from there. So the people who want the scriptures to say things they don't say have to do some fudging because you know God is in charge of these things. A kind of famous one is in Romans 16:1. Uh Paul is writing and says I commend to you uh, our sister Phoebe who has been a deacon of the church in mm. Centria. I can do some translation on the word deacon. It's pretty easy because it's the Greek word diakonin, And even I can figure that one out. Now, once we get to the medieval period, we get to the, uh, actually, the early renaissance where you get your King James is putting his Bible together and Deacon has become a role with some power and some status to it that only men have, they decide, eh, maybe Phoebe was a servant. We can use that word in there Mm -hmm. as well. And now you have, like, the NIV and some more modern translations take it back to Deacon. But even as they do that... They they try assume that this is a group of scholars trying to minimize uh, Sister Phoebe there. It is still the same Greek word where Jesus says, right. anyone who wants to be great among you shall be a servant. They didn't do a great job uh, diminishing her in that one. And these are the kind of little things where definitely, as we're saying, there's there's been a culture, there's been... Conspiracy is a strong word, but you know... A cabal of wealthy white guys, whatever you want to call it, have been uh, doing some stuff over some time, but you don't have to go to anything extracurricular to find a Jesus and a God who respects women, who who thinks of women as equal, who thinks of women as having things to contribute and to uh, give to the world equal to and greater than in a lot of cases than men do. But you do sometimes have to go back to what's really there. And part of the thing is if you're raised in certain ways— if you've had certain things put to you as just the undeniable truth and the, just the gravity and way of the universe, and God agrees with me because I'm the person with the mic, and that's the way it is. I, we totally understand you wanting to have a Christianity that is shed of all those things. We want that for you. We want that for ourselves, to be honest. but you're, you're probably going to have a better chance of finding something real and a better chance of finding something filling by going to the real thing. And stripping it down as opposed to trying to add things on on the back end. Just something to think about. Mm-hmm. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. Don't forget to join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time at facebook.com slash bridgechicago for The Bridge Live. Check out the song this week. Our Deacons have been doing amazing work on The Bridge Live. We're going to take out a collection of with a song from the Deacons Division. It's called Everlasting. and to have that, thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it.
1: The Say That Podcast, asking the burning question, what if men felt more manly when they bent down to raise others up? <laughs> <laughs> what a fellowship, what a joy to find. I'm leaning,
4: leaning on the arm of Everlasting. What a blessedness! this, what a peace of mind. I'm leaning, leaning on the arm of Everlasting. I'm leaning. I'm leaning, I'm leaning, safe and secure from all along, I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, On the arm, everlasting. Where do I get my hope? Streets on fire, smoke thick, so I choke. Beat get higher in my chest, so I don't rest. wire in my mind, but I'm still blessed. Old life like a bando, won't live in it. I'm a real man, though, so I'm giving it all to my God on high. Open my eyes, keep them on the prize. No more lies when I look back. No more lies, life stay on track. No more lies, no, it ain't no act. Race up sad, so you won't get cracked. No, it's a fact. God's love, it's the universe. He gave it all up for me, put it Lived the scared, life alone, and it was the worst when I was doing God dirty. He was loving me first. How sweet the walk in this new way. I'm leaning, leaning on the arm, everlasting. How bright the path, growing every day. I'm leaning, leaning on the arm, everlasting. I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, safe and secure from all alone. Arm Everlasting. I don't get tripped up us In the squad of Satan, but God's love flipped us. My head, He lifted. up. Freedom, He give us. Too good to quit. Love is better than all the death we whipped up. That grace is a new taste.
1: Gotta look in my mirror. See a new face. Grace sounds sweet, cause it ain't earned. Can't nobody take away what I learned.
2: Forget what you heard. I can see the path now. I won't get burned. God, lead me now. So I won't turn. Not
4: left, no right. That path so bright. We'll talk all over. So God gave me a light. Won't hide it in shame. I won't hide it in fear. I won't hide from the world because Jesus is near. Oh, God with us like a manual. Try to fix your life. Better open up the manual. Well, I. I dread, where I the fear? I'm leaning, leaning on the arm everlasting. I got total peace, she's so near. I'm leaning, leaning on the arm everlasting. I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, safe and secure from all alone. I'm leaning. Everlasting, I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, safe and secure from all alone. I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, I'm leaning, leaning on the arm, everlasting. I'm leaning, leaning, I'm leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alone.